Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with another edition of our weekly episode of Listener Mail, where we spend time answering your questions about the issues, about what we see on the campaign trail, about anything else you're curious about. I'm Scott Tetro. I cover the campaign. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. As usual, you're hearing this on Monday, October 3rd, but we're taping this the Friday before, so if there's any big weekend news, any big weekend tweets, don't worry, we'll be back in your podcast feed to talk about it soon. And tomorrow night is the vice presidential debate. We'll have a quick take for you on the candidates Tim Kaine and Mike Pence later today. And we've gotten a lot of debate-related questions this week, so we'll answer some of those questions today, too. All right, you guys ready? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Let's start with a recorded question from Rod in British Columbia, Canada. Hey, NPR Politics team. It's Rod Phillips calling from Victoria, B.C., Canada. Love the show. In fact, I must check my feed at least four or five times on Thursday. I can't wait. Anyway, my question is about the presidential debate, and it seemed uh, pervasive that Hillary did beat Donald on Monday night, but I haven't really seen a significant downtake in Donald's popularity or an uptake in Hillary's popularity. I'd really like to know your thoughts as to why that is. Anyway, love the show. Keep it going. This sounds like a Domenico question. (laughs) Well, it takes a little bit of time for these things to settle in. You know, it's not just about what happens on debate night, but also what happens in the week that follows. What dominates the news coverage? How have people started to interpret it? It's like the day after like a hit show, right? Everyone stands around their water cooler and they're like, what'd you think? Did you see that scene? Like, Mm -hmm. did you see that she said that like she likes to prepare for being president? But people talk to each other. They try to figure out over the next week or so where things go. So let's wait for the big national polls and some of the state polling. We're starting to get some evidence, by the way, that Hillary Clinton did win that debate and did pretty well based on some of the scientific polls after the first couple of days, as well as some of the new state polling that we've seen where her lead has expanded again in Michigan and in New Hampshire, for example. Although, and- I mean, it would be... Wrongheaded, I think, to expect too much of a swing, right? Because because totally. a an overwhelming majority of people said, you know, went in saying this debate wouldn't change their minds. They already knew who they were going to vote for, and came out of it saying it didn't change their minds. I don't know. I feel like there's been so many unexpected things that's happened this year. We did see more than 81 million people watch this debate. That makes it the most watched debate ever, more than Reagan and Carter in 1980. And given that both of these candidates have been kind of in the mid 40s and there seems like some soft support going back and forth in a certain segment of the world, I wonder if we do see a bigger shift than normal. But again, we'll find out. Before we go to the next question, I just wonder if we should quickly talk about something that that did kind of be part of the conversation this week. And, and that's the value of these online polls. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think value or lack thereof. Yeah, yeah, or I, lack I mean, thereof. And like uh, there's there's just, a difference between yeah. online polls where we've seen a lot of people start to do actual weighted surveys. Mm-hmm. It's kind of experimental, not still the best methodology, but that's not at all what we're talking about. Right. When you're talking about what the Trump campaign has been touting as winning in all the polls, it's an absurdity. This is I mean, this is uh who do you think won the debate? Click here, refresh and click here again as many right. times as you want. It's like the all-star mm-hmm. game voting. It's like, you can bet as many exactly. times as it's, you want. It's America's Got Talent. It's the voice. Yeah. Like, that is, that's totally gameable. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, people who responding to these online polls are a self-selecting crowd. You have to have gone to the poll or sought it out or been directed to it. Uh, so that, by nature, makes it a non-scientific sample. It is not a random sample, which is what you want in a lot of surveys. There you go. <laughs> online polls, not a thing you should spend time thinking about, at least when it comes to who won the debate. Okay, moving on to a non-debate-related question from Matthew in Omaha, Nebraska. 
And it is a question I need to read. (laughs) 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 All right. Dear all, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Absolutely love the podcast, especially on 5 a.m. walks with the dogs before classes. You are an ambitious person. Also, 5 a.m. walks in Omaha. I mean, if that's year-round, this guy is is a badass. (laughs) It gets cold in Omaha. (laughs) Go. Like a lot of people in my generation, I've cut cable thanks to Apple TV, Amazon Fire Stick, and Chromecast. Of course, live streaming television shows, you still get advertisements. But I've seen only Hillary ads at the president level. My question for you is how this shift away from cable has affected the way campaigns target their ads and whether the Trump campaign is using this new media or like most internet advertising, these are more micro-targeted than regular television ads. Best wishes, Matthew. Well, in some respects, they are micro-targeted, but this is the new wave of advertising. And, you know, Scott, you know, as you've been covering data during this campaign, that certain campaigns do this a lot better than others. The Trump campaign has been very, very slow to get on any kind of platform other than cable news. Uh, You've seen them start to run some state advertising. You don't see them running as much of the digital advertising as the Clinton campaign. Now, that said, Matthew, if he's a regular Democratic voter or he has behaviors that fit somebody who would be cast as someone who might vote Democratic, you're going to get more specified tailored ads unless you clear that cash or clear your cookies. Especially in Omaha, which is a great example on the presidential level of a micro-targeted presidential area because Omaha is uh, the congressional district around Omaha because Nebraska divides its presidential votes by congressional district is one that Hillary Clinton could conceivably win, even though there's no chance she's going to win the state of Nebraska. Right. But I think as you see more trends, you're right that 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 Chromecasting and online viewing allows campaigns to specifically put an ad in front of a specific type of person that they want to reach, whether that's a Democrat or whether that's a, a guy in his 30s or whether that's somebody who likes certain things on Facebook. But uh, I, I think where you really see campaigns starting to take advantage of that is not the presidential campaigns, but but local races, because, you know, if you're running for Congress or you're running for a state legislative district and you have to buy ads that that blast across in every direction, you're wasting a lot of money because a lot of people who see that ad aren't your voters. Mm-hmm. Online uh, advertising and targeted ad- advertising allows you to kind of find your actual district and not waste your money. Right. And I mean, I will add that I believe campaigns are still just sort of finding their footing when it comes to uh, online advertising. This is still pretty new, uh, you know, considering that presidential elections happen once every four years. So they yeah. haven't had many opportunities to do this. One figure that I got from a market research firm uh, for a story I wrote earlier this year, uh, it says that digital spending in 2016 could top $1 billion. And that would be growth of 576% over 2012. So, I mean, even in these last four years, lots of us were still online in 2012, but there just weren't going to be nearly as many ads or as much spending on ads as there is this time. And I'm sure next time it'll be far bigger. Right. This is the third election of Facebook and Twitter, but Facebook and Twitter have looked very different in every single one of those elections. Absolutely. So we are hitting all of the states that divide their electoral vote by congressional district because the next question, we're going to Maine. (laughs) Kath in Maine has a recorded question for us. Hi, NPR Politics Podcast. This is Kath calling from Yarmouth, Maine. It's a beautiful area. And my question is, if the Democrats are trying to attract young voters and African-American voters, why would they not use the lovely Malia Obama as a spokesperson? Is there any precedent for that, for a current president's kid to stump for the next president? Any reason not to use her? Just curious. Thanks. I think that the Obamas have, and most 
people who have young children who grow up in the White House are very protective of their privacy. Right. And you're not going to put somebody out there. Um, she just you know, graduated who, high school. Who ju- someone who just graduated high school. You know, you have seen Michelle Obama out there quite a bit. And she, I think, has been one of the most effective surrogates for Hillary Clinton. And, you know, the way that Hillary Clinton has used Chelsea Clinton is interesting. I mean, I think this year... There's not that much interesting about it. She's an adult. But in 2008, it was interesting because Chelsea Clinton was an adult who had been an adult for a while now. But the way that the Clinton campaign kind of managed her events was very overprotective. Reporters basically weren't allowed to ask Chelsea Clinton any questions when she campaigned during the 2008 primary. And it was kind of strange. No, that's totally the case. And, you know, there were controversies that came up on whether or not, uh, you know, how news media talked about Chelsea Clinton. So, you know. Candidates, presidential candidates are always generally very protective of their children. I almost wonder if it would be poor form, if some voters would consider it poor form for a candidate to bring their kids out as a surrogate, right? Or to bring any kids out as a surrogate or anyone of who might even be around 18 or so, because, you know, it can seem exploitative, perhaps like here is here is a youngster and that we're sort of pushing out in front of a spotlight. I mean, candidates who do have have cute young kids certainly do make sure to get them on stage with them. I mean, that's something we've seen every election. One thing I just thought of now, a good use and a kind of controversial use of a kid was um, the New York mayor's race a couple years ago when Bill de Blasio had a very powerful Mm -hmm. ad with his son, Dante. Bill de Blasio is white. His wife is black. So his son's biracial. And it was a really powerful ad just talking about uh, stop and frisk and just kind of the tension between between being a young black man and police officers. All right. Up next, it's another recorded question. This is one from Shay in Virginia. Hello, NPR politics team. My name is Shay. I live in Virginia and I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I hope you don't mind that I consider you all personal friends of mine now after spending so much time with you over the past few months. Aww. I'm a white 33-year-old voter, and I vote based in large part on my Christian faith, which is precisely why I'm a Democrat and a big-time Hillary supporter. Many of my former seminary classmates and other religious folks I know also vote based on their faith and are therefore Democrats. So here's my question. Are there any good numbers on the Christian left vote? Thanks so much. I love this question. All right. (laughs) So here we go. Uh, so so Christian left and Christian right are both very amorphous, squishy terms, you know, so it's hard to really take a lot of denominations and really put them firmly in Christian left. Mm-hmm. But I do have a breakdown of the parties here. So Democratic voters, as of 2016, uh, in large part are unaffiliated. A bunch of people who either say they're atheist, agnostic, or, you know, the sort of amorphous spiritual but not religious uh designation that a lot of people claim. The and, nuns. Yeah. But religious, not like Catholic nuns. Right, religious nuns. <laughs> N-O-N-E-S. It's the clever term that uh, <laughs> that there, that is out there. For that was this a thing. ruler hitting Domenico sound. So anyway. <laughs> Dad joke. But really, uh, religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are the fastest growing, quote unquote, religious group in the United States right now. And they are very heavily represented on the Democratic side. 29% of Democrats are that compared to 12% of Republicans. Uh, Meanwhile, the Democratic side, yeah, you have a smattering of like white evangelicals, white Catholics, white mainline Protestants. But, you know, evangelicals, which is a sort of problematic term, but a term that tends to be used to describe a lot of especially right leaning Christians. Of course, they are much more heavily represented on the Republican side and problematic. Just just, I'm sorry, just because uh, just because when people say it in political terms, it, it, it often has no bearing on reality right. of what it is, this community is. It looks is like. not terribly uh, connected to what the theological meaning is. And there's a lot of disagreement about what the theological meaning is as mm-hmm. well. So the point being that you have a much more pluralistic religiously 
look on among Democrats. You have a lot you have a lot of the people who who claim other religions, a lot of unaffiliated people. And you have black Protestants who tend to be counted separate from of from white Protestants for a variety of reasons. So so there's that. So that's how it looks on the Christian left. But our questioner wants to know why the Christian left doesn't come up, why we don't talk about it a lot. And really, a lot of it is just that the Christian left has not been a movement the yeah. way that the Christian right has been. I mean, any of us can name Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, you know, Tony Perkins, uh, the, all of these people and things, whereas well, the Christian left just hasn't had this. They don't have it's, their own it's convention. Had big movements. It's had big movements in right. other countries. I mean, in Latin America, liberation theology, the idea of kind of using the Christian church, the Catholic church to push aggressively for more rights for poor people was a big political movement, mm-hmm. but not something we've seen in here as much. Right. You don't see them vote as a block in the same way. You know, the the moral majority, quote unquote, came together in the 80s to sort of try to push Republicans uh, and politicians just generally into a more religious direction. And they largely were credited with George W. Bush's election and re-election because they made up some quarter of the electorate. That's just the reality with the social justice-oriented left, they tend to vote Democratic. They've been in that camp. They haven't voted as a block to try to move them in any particular direction. Mm -hmm. Um, And when that happens, they kind of just get lumped in with Democrats. So I think actually tomorrow night's debate will be a really interesting high-profile example of the Christian right and the Christian left having a conversation. Tim Kaine and Mike Pence are two very religious people, both raised Catholic. Mike Pence is kind of become more of an evangelical Christian as an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Kaine, a uh, devout Catholic, but kind of embracing the the more liberal side of Catholic teaching. Right. But anyway, it'll be interesting to see the two of them. They both often talk about how religion fits into their political life. It'll be interesting to see them, the, the flip sides of the coin when it comes to how politicians talk about uh, religion. Hillary Clinton, too, by the way, is oh, yeah. an example of the social left, yeah. uh, Christian left. Uh, you know, People don't talk about her religion as much, but she's been a Methodist and has talked often about how that's been key to her political values. Just to sort of round this out, 41% of Americans told the Pew Research Center they have even heard of the religious left compared to 58% who had heard of the religious right. Interesting. Uh, so, I mean, even knowledge of the, you can't even quite call it a movement necessarily, but knowledge of these two sorts of ideas uh, is still, there's a pretty big gulf there. All right. So the next question is about the vice presidential debate. We already started talking about it. Let's keep talking about it. It's from Josh in Waco, Texas. He writes, with the vice presidential debate coming up, how badly would either candidate need to mess up to swing votes against them? <laughs> Good question, because actually, in terms of high profile flubs that we all remember, there's been more in vice presidential debates <laughs> than presidential debates. Yeah, but they don't usually tip the balance yeah. either direction. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, I I think that there would have to be a ginormous mess up to even make huge headlines uh, in this next debate. I wonder going into this if Mike Pence doesn't have a bit more uh, of a burden placed upon him. (laughs) I think he does. uh, Because, you know, I I imagine he will be asked about many of the things that uh, Donald Trump has tweeted, has said, and, you know, asked, okay, so how do you feel about this? To see just how consonant their views are. Yeah, just in the past week. uh, And I think that it's going to be a little bit of cleanup on aisle seven for Mike Pence because the Trump campaign, no matter what they're saying publicly, privately, they acknowledge and understand that they're that that first debate was not good for their candidate. And this is the next biggest opportunity to try to stop some of the momentum in the other direction and to be a bit of a pivot point uh, to help them as they try to prepare for that next presidential debate. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so we're going to go to the next question, but Josh wanted to note that he thinks we should say GIF instead of GIF. I feel like we're all pretty split on that. I am team yeah. GIF. Is Me any... too. Yes. But, so we know I'm team GIF. And, oh, and, but you're a contrarian. Uh... No, it's not because I'm a contrarian. It's actually because the guy who invented it said that that's what it's called. So that's what I go with. You well, know, since Josh's it's... fiance was an English major, I feel like she would appreciate the idea of once, I forget what it's called, because it's been a while, but once you author something, you kind of lose control over how it's interpreted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's the case with Mr. GIF inventor saying GIF. Next up is a question from Sean. Sean writes, where has Tim Kaine been? I feel like I constantly hear about Mike Pence on the campaign trail, but I've not heard much from Tim Kaine. Thanks. I love the show. I feel like Kim, Tim Kaine has actually been campaigning yeah. a lot. Mm. Uh, one thing Tim Kaine has been doing is picking up more of the fundraisers lately. But Tim Kaine has had a pretty consistent campaign schedule. I think he just maybe doesn't make as many headlines. Yeah, I think he just sort of gets overshadowed by, you know, the couple of other things that happen in the day-to-day news all the time. He's also simpatico with his principal. I mean, he's in line with Hillary Clinton. So when that happens, then there's not much news that he can make, you know, as opposed to Mike Pence. Tim Kaine agrees with Hillary Clinton again. (laughs) Who knew? Like, Like Mike Pence, on the other hand, has had to have been asked about tons of controversies that... Donald Trump has landed in and whether or not he agrees on, for example, negative campaigning because Mike Pence wrote this whole thing when he was running for for office that he's against negative campaigning. So, you know, he winds up in these kinds of positions where he's having to defend his candidate. One thing I like about Tim Kaine campaigning is that he does it with props. He um, he brings and this is actually something that was a can't let it go about a month ago for us. Uh, he bre- he pulls out props of the book that he quote unquote wrote with Hillary Clinton about their policy proposal mm-hmm. stronger together, and then he uh, holds up the book that Donald Trump wrote called Crippled America, and he goes, "Look, we're so optimistic, and Donald Trump is so negative. Look at his book." Oh boy! Though actually, Donald Trump <laughs> did pivot on his book and reissue it with a more positive name more recently, so it's not Crippled America with Donald Trump frowning at the uh, out from the cover. Question seven. We're going to close out on a final debate-related question. It is a question from Kevin in San Jose. It's about fact-checking. Hey, y'all, Kevin writes, if the audience doesn't already know who's right, they're probably going to go with whoever they are already inclined to believe or who comes off as more believable in the moment. For most viewers, will falsehoods be cleared up in the media, consumed post-debate, or will most folks be left with whatever they decided in the moment during the debate? I really enjoy the podcast. Kevin. Let me start with a couple caveats. First of all, like I said earlier, a lot of people just had their minds made up going into the debate. Nothing was going to really sway them. Furthermore, a lot of Americans don't even read fact checks or seek them out. And furthermore, lots of Americans don't trust the media. Uh, One third of independents and Republicans as of 2015 said they did, according to Gallup, versus 55 percent of Democrats. So we're starting there. According to the research, it depends on how the fact check is done. Uh, So real-time fact checks, there's not a lot of good research on them because there hasn't been a whole lot of a way to really study them. But it is reasonable to believe that those should be somewhat helpful at, if not dislodging uh, falsehoods, at the very least preventing them from sticking. Because one thing we do know is if you repeat a falsehood over and over it sticks in people's brains because they become familiar with it. And what I learned from Danielle's piece is that the most engaged people already are the ones who will go and consume fact checks. So whether or not you're expanding the audience or whether you're tailoring it to a group of people who are already reading these kinds of things is what's up for debate. Right. A lot of people who are misinformed are very 
confidently misinformed. And furthermore, once you are that confidently misinformed, once you are dug in in your position, your brain will rationalize. It will take whatever new information you throw at it. And it has a, your brain has a, a penchant for reassembling that information in a way that makes sense to your pre-existing beliefs. So it's really hard to change someone's mind. But you know what? Even if they don't seem to have a deep impact, NPR is pushing on like boats against the current of not reading fact checks by aggressively fact checking these debates. On Monday night's debate, millions and millions of people read this. We, mm-hmm. we put the transcript up in real time. We fact checked. We had like 20 different reporters fact checking the areas of their expertise. Uh, it was something we were all really proud of. We are going to continue doing this for all the upcoming debates. So If you are watching the debate tomorrow night or uh, next week and someone says something that you're not quite sure about, Mm -hmm. go to NPR.org. We will be fact-checking it. Right. And I want to make it clear, fact-checking does not work perfectly if you throw a fact at someone it doesn't always stick however fact checking does work some of the time so you should definitely join us tuesday night for our fact checking all right a reminder to write us with your questions or record them and send them to nprpolitics at npr.org we read all of them don't forget to check out our quick take episode on the vice presidential candidates out later today and once again we'll be in your feed with an episode out the morning after the debate And during the debate, you can tune into live coverage on your local public radio station and check out that live fact check as the debate's happening at NPR.org. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the campaign. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. (laughs) 